Uh, I think I forgot to mention uh, that tonight at 6 o'clock will be our Reformation um, Day potluck. Um, you don't need to sign up at this point. You're just welcome to come. Bring your friends, bring your neighbors, uh, bring anybody. It'll be some good food, time for some good fellowship. Turn to Mark 14 and put your finger in 1 Peter 5. Mark 14 with a detour later on in 1 Peter 5. We'll be looking at verses 26 to 31. We'll be looking at Peter's denial foretold. Peter's denial foretold. With rare exception, all the heroes of the Bible... You will find as you read the pages of Scripture, if you give if you give the Bible more than just a cursory glance, even a cursory glance on that, uh, will tell you, will show you, will convince you that all the men, all the heroes of the Bible, with minor few exceptions, will have feet of clay. They have, they make blundering errors. They they sin. Imagine that. Noah got drunk and removed his robes. Abraham and Isaac both lied about their wives. Jacob deceived and played favorites with his wives and children. Joseph was a little proud that he was daddy's boy. Moses murdered and then later on lost his cool in the wilderness. Samson liked the ladies. Samuel was a failure as a father. David, likewise, was a failure as a father and at times a failure as a king. And, oh, by the way, he committed adultery and then lied and then murdered to try to cover it all up. Solomon, likewise, liked the ladies and went after other gods. Jeremiah, Jonah, Elijah, and perhaps other prophets tried to throw in the towel when their charge was too much for them. The Galatians quickly went after a counterfeit gospel no sooner after Paul had left them. Mark, like some of the prophets, threw in the towel and abandoned Paul on the mission field when things got a little tough. The Corinthians, well, you could make a couple episodes on the Jerry Springer show with the Corinthian church. The Ephesian church left their first love. The Laodicean church became tepid and to the point that Jesus wanted to spit them out of his mouth. Timothy became paralyzed because he was fearful of men. Indeed, even even among the very best of Christians, you will find feet made not of steel or even iron, but feet made of fragile clay. Truth is that Romans 7 applies to all of them, and applies to all of us, and it applies to me. And if there's one man that perhaps, one of these fragile heroes of the faith, and maybe it's appropriate to put air quotes around heroes, but if there's one that stands out just a little bit above the rest to us, as far as his failures is concerned, it's the disciple turned apostle Peter. Peter is was one who did everything in fifth 
gear. He didn't know how to slow down. Whether he was really good or really bad, he was always he always seemed to be off the charts. He always it, his his mouth just seemed to contort to the to the shape of his foot. He was full tilt, off the wall, in fifth gear, everything he does. When he, when he was good, he was really good. When he was bad, he was really bad. Our text today shows a wonderful picture of the good shepherd ministering to stubborn, obstinate, self-willed Peter. And it was good for Peter to have this conversation with Jesus and it's good for us we can strongly benefit from from seeing what Jesus has to say we can divide our text into five headings the departure in verse 26 the declaration in verse 27 to 28 the denial in verse 29 the details in verse 30 and then the doubling down Verse 31. Let's read the text. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you, to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, if he he either would stomp his foot or if he's next if he was next to a pulpit, you bet he he pounded that pulpit right there. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. Let's look at the departure in verse 26. Mark writes, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They went out. Went out from where? That's the upper room is where they went out from. The upper room where the Passover meal has just been celebrated. The Passover meal started around 6 p.m. It's now approximately midnight. And you may say, wow, that is a long meal. Well, there was a lot that went on. Somewhere in the middle of the dinner, after, after the foot washing, after, after many things happened, Judas left. And from the point that Judas leaves, somewhere in the middle, everything from John chapter 30, 13, verse 31, all the way to the conclusion of chapter 17, that's almost five chapters, occurs in the upper room in that last segment of time during the Passover meal. Now, traditionally, during the Passover meal, Psalms 113 to 118 were sung. Those were called the the, the Hallel songs. Hallel, anyone know what Hallel means in Hebrew? What if I said, Hallelujah? 
means praise. These were the praise psalms from Israel's hymnal book, as it were. 113 and 114 were sung during the first half of the meal. 115 through 118 were sung at its close. And I uh, wanted to just read a couple verses because I can't say with certainty if, uh, if these were the, ver- the last verses that our Lord sung, that our Lord led his disciples into reading. But I, I, with reasonable certainty, I can say they were. Listen to what Psalm 118 says in verse 6. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction with those who hate me. You know, Jesus had a few who hated him, who were looking out for his blood. Verse 17 and on. I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. Now tell me if you've heard this before. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Have we heard that before? This is... Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord had made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Jesus is singing. He is leading the men into singing these lines hours before he's arrested. O Lord, do save. We beseech you. Or in in another translation, it would read, Hosanna. We heard that before? O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness, his chesed, is everlasting. Now, could you not imagine, could you not feel the extra weight those verses would have on the Lord as he is singing, as as he's ushering his disciples into worship? Could you imagine what those words would be doing as they go through his mind? Yes, he's God, you may say, but he is also man. Contrary to what some have said throughout church history, Christ wasn't just a divine spirit in a human husk. He was not God inhabiting or dwelling a human shell, devoid or insensitive to stimulus. He had a human mind. He had a human physiology. And get this. When he was stressed, his heart rate went up. When he was under pressure, and he was, his blood pressure went up. We are just about to read how he will be under so much intense 
pressure and stress that his capillaries will burst and he will sweat drops of blood. That is a known medical condition. It's amazing that with that going on, he leads these men, these men into singing. It's amazing that with that on his heart, he sings. He nevertheless sings. He is always the shepherd. He is always the good shepherd leading his sheep precisely where they need to be led to. The good shepherd calls in for no sick days, calls in for no substitutes, no sabbaticals, no time off, no reduced hours, no half days. He's always with them, always leading them exactly where they need to be taken to. And right now, he is leading them from the front like a good Palestinian shepherd would do. He's leading by example. He's leading from the fore, and he is leading them straight into worship. Spurgeon said, It's as if the Lord is saying to them, and by extension to us as well, all who would be the Lord's disciples, it's as if he is saying, my religion is one of happiness and joy. I, your master, by my example, would instruct you to sing even when the last solemn hour is come and all the glooms of death are gathered around you. Here at the table, I am your singing master. I set you lessons in music in which my dying voice shall lead you. Notwithstanding all the griefs which overwhelm my heart, I will be to you the chief musician and the sweet singer of Israel. Blood, if there was ever a man who could feel so low that he could lay his head on the table and flood the floor with tears, it is Christ in this hour. If there was ever a time a man could rightly retreat into the solace of isolation and, and cry and bemoan and lament the trial that is coming upon him with sighs and tears, it was Christ in this hour. But no, our Christ, our good shepherd, Our Jesus is a brave man. He is a courageous, stalwart man who leads and ushers his his disciples into singing a hymn. Spurgeon goes on to say, Our glorious Jesus plays the man beyond all other men. Behold, uh, boldest of the sons of Men, he quails not in the hour of battle, but tunes his voice to the loftiest psalmody. The genius of that Christianity of which Jesus is the head and founder, its object, its spirit, its design, are happiness and joy. And those who receive it are able to sing in the very jaws of death. Kind of like how Paul and Silas sung when they were beaten with rods. And left half for dead in a Philippian jail. It's the sentiment that Paul instructs the churches 
to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.19. What, what does being filled in the Spirit look like, you would, you would ask? Well, Paul says it's speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Spirit-filled people in good days and in bad days are a singing people. Singing doesn't automatically make you spiritual. Mormon tabernacle are a singing people. Didn't we read just this morning in Exodus 32? Israel, as they're carousing, as they're dancing and singing with lasciviousness, they were a singing people. Being Singing doesn't automatically make you spiritual, but being spiritual ought to make you sing. It must make you and I sing. And that's what we see in the, in the annals of the early church. The early church was a singing church. They were a singing people. So after singing, Jesus begins to lead them to the Mount of Olives. Where's the Mount of Olives? It is across the Kidron Valley. That's the... The ravine immediately on the eastern side of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is across that valley opposite of the temple. And it is very possibly uh, where Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse. Well, I, no, I mean, I'm sorry. The Mount of Olives obviously is where the, the Olivet Discourse was given. The Garden of Gethsemane may have been the part of the mount where they were. It's very late. Judas has been there for. Uh, Judas has been gone for some time, and by now he has probably already arrived at the Sanhedrin's office or at the house of the high priest. They have already summoned the temple police and the Roman guards, the Roman soldiers. Later on, we will read that Judas will bring with them a with him a large crowd. You can see that down in verse forty three. And unlike the large crowd that surrounded Jesus for the last three years, this large crowd don't, doesn't have questions and concerns and requests. They have clubs and swords. Why would they have clubs and swords? Jack, why would they have clubs and swords? To ask him a question? They're there to kill him. This is a large, hostile, angry, armed mob which Judas will lead to Gethsemane. Because Judas knows that the Lord is a man of prayer and he is fond of retreating in solace and isolation to the garden of the Gethsemane to pray to the one who will always hear him and who has always heard him. And there Jesus will be vulnerable because he will be isolated. And Judas reckons if there's anyone there with him, it could only be those redneck Galilean fishermen. Not exactly a group of people who could put up a fight, especially with temple police and the Romans. And it's in precisely in light of this rapidly approaching confrontation that as they are en route to the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus makes a startling declaration to the men. You see this in verse 27 and 28. He says to them, you will all fall away. Now, what this text shows us is uh, what the Gospel of Mark shows us, and that's what every Gospel shows us, is that Jesus is one 
who knows what is to come with precise accuracy. He's not, a, he's not just merely a wise man. He is not a sage. He's not an analyst. He, he's not just really good at reading people or sticking his finger in the air and, and uh, predicting what people are going to do or what's going to happen. This isn't, tell me if you see a Jesus who has a 99% almost sure probability that he knows what's going to happen. Is that what we see? No, we see a Jesus who knows with absolute, certain, unwavering certainty what is going to happen. Why is that, you may ask, because he's God. Well, I thought you said he was a man. Yeah, he's a man too, but he's God. He's the God-man. Notice how Jesus begins this important word to his disciples. He says, you will all fall away. And I imagine that stopped them dead in their tracks. That probably took the wind right out of them. Now think about it. These are the men who have stuck with Jesus for three years, maybe three and a half years. These are the men who confessed with Peter the rock after the multitude, or rather, as the multitudes were walking away. John chapter 6, verse 66. Then many of his disciples walked with him no longer. These are the men who stuck with him. These are the men who all confessed, you have the words of eternal life. Where would we go? Rhetorical question. Implied answer. There is nowhere to go. These are the men who have left everything for Jesus. They have left families. They have left homes. They have left jobs to answer the Lord's call. They have left everything to be his disciples. Beloved, if there, if there were men that Jesus could count on, if there were men that, would, that could be loyal, it would be these men. It would have to be these men, if anybody. But here Jesus says there's a day coming, and it's a, it's a day that's coming very soon, a little too soon, when they will all fall away. Now, this word fall away, if I say it in the Greek, I think you could probably tell uh, what word it's been, it has been carried over to in English. Scandalizo. What word is that in English? You're right, politician. The, the basic meaning of scandalizo, and it does have some range, and I don't want to get too caught up in this, but the, the basic meaning, the root meaning of the word, it has the idea of being caught, of being ensnared, caught in a trap uh, like a hunter would use. Um, it, can, it can be extended to mean to stumble or to, to cause to stumble, to sin, to, be, to cause somebody else to sin, to be offended, to, be, to become angry. When, back when I was uh, in the Snoqualmie Valley School District, we had this chart that would explain different, different uh, uh, stages of, uh, of emotional levels where kids can be, and, and the colors would, would tell you uh, um, basically what you could expect of them. If they were in the green zone, that is, that is a learning, uh, uh, they're in a, a learning state of mind. They can listen, they can process information. If they are in the red zone, you're not going to teach them anything. When they're in the red zone, um, their thinking faculties aren't aren't working. They are they are feeling. 
And, and we can all relate to this, can't we? They, they think, uh, uh, they, they feel. They think by their feelings, not by, not by their mind. Peter is in the red zone. Or rather, they are all going to be in the red zone. In chapter 9, we saw this word stumble uh, when Jesus says, if one of your members causes you to stumble, what should you do? If one, of the, if one of your members causes you to red zone, what do you do? You cut it off. So this isn't just, you know, I, I got this little mosquito bite. It's, a, it's, it, it's kind of annoying me. It's irritating me. That's not scandalizo. That's not red zone. I, I can endure irritation. But if I go to the doctor and this turns out to be cancerous, that could become red zone. That will red zone my physiology. It's got to go. Got to cut it off. Chapter 6 the Nazareans stumbled or scandalizoed or red-zoned when homegrown, homegrown Jesus had the gall to identify himself as Messiah. So the question for us is, is Jesus saying his disciples are going to fall away like the Nazareans who didn't believe in him? Is Jesus saying that the disciples are going to, be, are going to fall away or be severed and discarded like a part of your anatomy that could kill you will the disciples stumble will they scandalizo will they red zone like judas who has already red zoned over jesus's failure to line up to his messianic expectations those are good questions well jesus tells us tells them and and by extension he tells us precisely what he means the reason you will stumble, the reason you will red zone is, as he says in verse 27, the, is because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Whereas Judas was offended, he was scandalized, he was angry, he was red zoned, with Jesus and fell away because of Jesus, because of who Jesus turned out to be. Well, that's what happened to Judas. The question is, is, will that happen to the disciples? Will they be caught? Will they be ensnared in the same way? No. They will be caught. They will be ensnared. They will be scandalized, not by Christ, not by his person, but by what will happen to Jesus. Their faith will be challenged. Their loyalty will be shaken. Their loyalty will be challenged. And like sheep who have lost their shepherd, they're going to be red zoned to the utmost. They are going to become distraught. They are going to become emotionally unnerved, emotionally unsettled, and they are going to scatter. Now, as surely as I would have received it, and may, perhaps some of you would have received it, I think these men received this as a reprimand. Does it sound like a reprimand? Does it feel like a reprimand? But I don't think that was Jesus' intention. I think his intention was, one, to build their faith. I want you to notice the personal pronoun that Jesus 
uh, puts into uh, his quotation of Zechariah 13:7. I will strike down the shepherd. Who's the I? Who's the one speaking? Zechariah? Zechariah's not going to strike down the shepherd. Zechariah's dead. Who is doing the striking? Somebody tell me. God. God is the striker. God ultimately, as the primary agent, is the one who will strike down the shepherd. And this is the same imagery. This is the same language as when he uh, used the Canaanites to judge Israel, to, to harass Israel during the time of the judges. This is the same image and the same language when he used the Assyrians as his sword to chastise his people. And the same when he used the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, the same people, as his sword. God is so powerful and mighty and sovereign that he even uses pagan peoples as a, as a means, as an, of an instrument, as a tool to accomplish his purpose among his people. That's how wise and powerful God is. And so he will raise up a sword and he will be the one ultimately. Yes, Judas had his part to play. He will be held accountable. The Jews have their part to play. They will be held accountable. Pilate when he handed over Jesus to death, even after he said, I find no fault in this man, nevertheless gave him over to be killed, he will be held responsible. They have their part to play. Ultimately, who killed Jesus Christ? Ultimately. God. Why would God do that? Isaiah 53.10 but the Lord, but Yahweh was pleased to crush him. Who's him? The servant of Yahweh. Putting him to grief. Why would he do that? Why would it please God to kill, to crush, to obliterate his own servant and put him to grief? Well, he continues. Because if he, being the servant, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see offspring. Isn't that kind of, doesn't that kind of go against the grain? If he will allow himself to be butchered, if he will allow himself to die, if he will go to the slaughter, he'll be satisfied. He'll see offspring. Usually the other way around. You see the offspring first and then you perish. But if he will render himself as a guilt offering, if he will be slain, he will see his, 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 his offspring. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it. I think that is, it could be the servant or it could be Yahweh. He will see it. It is pointing back to the anguish of his soul as, as the servant being offered up as a guilt offering. And be what? My servant will justify the many. Oh, that echoes of Mark 10.45, doesn't it? 
Son of Man came to serve, not to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for the many. My servant will justify the many. How will he do that? He will bear their oopsies, their whoopsies, their bad life decisions, their poor choices. What will he bear? What will Yahweh's servant bear of God's people? Somebody tell me. Their sins, their iniquities, their blemishes. Now, isn't that what Jesus has been saying from the beginning? I mean, from, from our record, at least from, from 831, but perhaps before that. And we know that since 831, he has said it again and again and again. He began to tell them, to teach them. He's been saying it for a long time in many ways. This must happen because it is written. The cross will happen. Why? Because it, let's finish it, is written. The cross wasn't an accident. The cross wasn't a tragic mistake. It wasn't an unfortunate turn of events. It wasn't, as Albert Schweitzer said, it wasn't Jesus trying to grab the wheel of history and turn it, only to get caught in its gears and ground in it. It was and always has always been God's plan. Did you know that about six to eight hundred years, I'm not sure exactly, but several centuries before crucifixion was ever invented, Isaiah said he will be pierced for our transgressions. John 3 says uh, 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 where Jesus is referring back to the bronze serpent that will be lifted up in, in a few chapters uh, in our public reading. He says, Jesus says, just as the serpent was lifted up, remember the, the serpents, uh, fiery serpents would bite the people, and when they got bit, all they had to do was look up at the serpent. Just as that bronze serpent was lifted up to be looked at as an obedience of faith, or as an act of obedience and faith, just as that serpent was to be lifted up and looked at, so too will the Son of Man be lifted up. always the cross was always god's plan just as he's told them before time and time and time again this is what is going to happen and it must happen because it is written so don't get distraught when it happens as if as if history just flew off the wheels as if history is uh, as, as if god has lost control of history he's told them again that this is coming so that they may endure the trial, so that they may trust in God's plan, which involved the cross, which was the cross. So this wasn't meant primarily as a reprimand. It was to teach them to build their faith in God's plan. Do you see that? Secondly, his intention was not to reprimand, but also, but uh, not only to build their faith, but to comfort them. Just like in the, uh, the last text, he, he gave the sad news and then immediately followed with the glad news. After I have been raised, the, the, the shepherd is going to be struck down and then immediately he says, after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Jesus is telling them uh, not just the, the really bad part that's going to happen, but even the good part that's going to happen right afterwards been reading this book 
by Dr. Karen Purvis and a few others called The Connected Child. And in it, it talks about uh, one ways that you can help uh, a child or, or anybody really go through a traumatic experience is, is giving them a game plan of what's going to happen. Let them know what's going to happen ahead of time so that when it happens, they don't go, whoa, what's, what's going on now? Where am I? What's going to happen now? I have no idea what's going on. You, you let them know ahead of time. You give them the game plan so they can be reassured and have some, some level of trust in your ability to lead them through it. That is what Jesus is doing here. He is, he is preparing them to succeed in the coming traumatic situation. It's not primarily meant as a reprimand. This warning is given to comfort them when the time comes. Wow, Jesus did know this was coming all along. Despite being struck down, he will be raised. Despite their scattering, this small flock will come together again. They will be reunited. Despite losing their shepherd, they will be reunited with their shepherd in Galilee. Do you, know, do you see that Jesus says, I will go before you? That is, that is a shepherd's image. Palestinian shepherds did not lead their flocks from, from the rear like Western shepherds do. They lead from the fore. They lead from the front. Well, Sarah wants to know, how, why do the sheep follow them? Well, they, they know their shepherd's voice, and they follow their shepherd's voice. He says, I will go ahead of you. This is just like back in 1032 when Jesus, when they were approaching Jerusalem, and Mark wrote that he went ahead of them. He was at the fore, leading them to Jerusalem. They knew, they knew that there was tension ahead. They knew there was conflict ahead. He led them where they needed to be. And just, as he led, he was, just as he went ahead of them to Jerusalem and led them there, he will go ahead of them to Galilee. He will lead them to Galilee. And we'll see this when we get to Mark 16, 7 where the angel says, but go, tell his disciples, uh, there's angels speaking to the women, but go and tell his disciples, and tell Peter, because he's going to need to be reminded of this. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Beloved, I hope you know that the good shepherd loses none of his flock. Ever. Ever. He who began a good work will what? Perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So we looked at the departure. We have see Jesus declare to the, to the disciples what will soon transpire. But the question now is, will they accept it? Will they accept it? What say you? Let's see, Peter's denial in verse 29. I guess that kind of uh, answers the question. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not pulpit pounding words. I will not. Oh, my. Oh, my. Now, on many occasions, we, we have seen Peter speak up he is he has been the de facto 
uh, leader and spokesman of the disciples under under Christ. He's been a spokesman for the group. And while we will see the rest of the men chime in at the end, we have to see that right now, Peter is not speaking for them. He didn't tell Jesus, now hold on a second, and go into a huddle with the rest of the disciples and you know, have a conference and make sure they're all on the same page. No, Peter, this is a knee-jerk, this is a gut reaction, this is a firing from the hip, impulsive Peter in fifth gear, roaring and ready to go. Peter's not speaking for them. Who is Peter speaking for? Peter. Now, on one hand, this is repulsive. On one hand, it's, it's, it's okay for us to get a little indignant, to be go, oh, Peter. Oh, Peter. This should offend us a little bit because we're on the outside looking in. We are, we, we are right now emotionally removed from Peter's situation. We're looking in on what's going on. But on the other hand, Peter humbles us because all too often, can't we sympathize? Can't we relate to Peter? Don't we, don't we all sometimes uh, need a footman after we put our feet in our own mouth? All too often, all too easily, we relate to Peter. His failures are our failures. Often Peter's failures are Aaron's failures. Even though all may fall away, says Peter. Even though all may fall away, I won't. Not me. Everyone else may stumble. Everyone else may scatter, but not me. It's you and me, Jesus. We're a team. We got each other's back. I got your back. You got my back. These guys, huh, these guys, that they, they may stumble. They, they, no wonder they, 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 may, their loyalty may falter. I won't. They may stumble. I won't. They may be like frightened little sheep who jump at their own shadow. I won't. Not me. I wouldn't do that. I would never do that. I could never do that. Do you hear the I, 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 I? That's why Steve Lawson says Peter is suffering from severe eye disease. (laughs) And on one hand, let's be fair. Let's be fair, okay? On one hand, I commend Peter. On one hand, I appreciate Peter because don't you, you, you've got to sense Peter's love for Christ oozing out. Peter does have love for Christ, and that is very good. He obviously loves the Lord. You can see that. You can feel that. His love is a propellant. It is one of the boosters for the rocket of his mouth opening. But unfortunately, there is a second booster. There is something else fueling and feeding his open mouth, and that is his pride. And there's two things if we examine and, and look at what Peter is saying, there's two things we can find that are really wrong with his protest. One, what has he done to his brothers, to, to the other disciples, to the other men? He's lifted himself. What has he done to them? Throw them under the bus. 
He has pushed them down so that he can lift himself up and sit on a pedestal. Yeah, you're right about them. I, I wouldn't expect too much about those guys. I mean, Simon the Zealot, yeah, he's probably a little tougher than the rest, but they're, they all fall like a house of cards. But I'm not like them. Mm-mm. Lord, I am better than they are. You know that. You and I, I mean, we're basically cut from the same cloth. I, I, I totally get you saying that they're going to fall. And even, even at this late hour, Peter, and as we'll see, the rest of the men as well, they are still trying to lift their own thrones over and against each other. They are still in love, unfortunately, with their own perceived greatness, with their own perceived self-importance. They are still self-willed. Maybe that's why uh, Paul says one of the qualifications for an elder is that he, he not be self-willed. So he's, he has pushed his brothers down to lift himself up. But what's worse, I think what's worse is, again, at least for the second time, Peter is correcting Jesus. Now, this is certainly more subtle than the last time. Surely, he, he doesn't say, may it never be. Surely, may it never be. He's not rejecting everything that Jesus said. I mean, in fact, he's affirming most of it. Only one out of the 11 guys that Jesus said will falter or not going to falter. I, I, was that like 88.5% accuracy for what Jesus said? I mean, it, what Jesus said is mostly right. Just one little part, I, I have to disagree with you, Jesus. One little part, one little thing needs to be changed, and that's the part about me stumbling. You know, the part about me being included with the rest of them and scattering. And beloved, hear me, this still happens in the church today all the time. This happens today in churches everywhere. People say with their mouths they believe the word of God, they believe Jesus, they trust in Jesus, they follow Jesus but in practice, when you examine their life, they'll see, we'll see that they only accept part of God's word that fit their mold. The parts that they like. The parts that they like. The parts that they find offensive. And tell me, tell me if you've heard any of these labels, labels before. The parts that they find offensive. Outdated. Hateful misogynistic or sexist, ethnic or racist, homophobic, bigoted, hateful. Have you, have, has anyone ever heard anyone charge certain parts of Scripture with those labels? Oh, I believe in the Word of God, just not when Paul says this about these people or, or this about that or the fact that you know there are differences between men and women. They sweep the parts they don't want, the 8.5% or whatever, or even 1% that they don't like that Jesus has said through either his mouth or through his apostles. They sweep what they don't like under the carpet, they, or they pretend those texts aren't there, or they do hermeneutical gymnastics to try to explain away. Well, when you look at the context 
and you look at these sources that came about eight centuries after the Bible was written, what this really means is 180 degrees over here. I kind of remember the, the Jesus charging the Pharisees with turning the, the word of God on its head like that. Dharmati is asking this question. I can feel it. What should Peter have done? And you shouldn't have laughed because now you're on my now you're on my radar. What should Peter have done? Well, he should have believed the Lord's that the Lord's assessment of him was truer and more right and more sound and more accurate than Peter's assessment of. Peter what should he have said not not me not yeah they're all going to do it but not I I surely won't No, what Peter should have said is something along the something along the lines of Lord help me I I didn't see this coming but you have never lied to me before I have no reason to doubt you help me teach me what should I what should I do where should I go? How can I prepare for this? Teach me what I should do in that hour that I might not deny you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the what? The way of escape. Most people stop right there and think, well, God's just going to wisp the problem away. No, the verse isn't done. With the temptation, he will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. What's that mean? It means that nobody upon sinning can go to God and say, well, I had no other choice. There was no option left for me. I had to do this or I had to do that. God always always provides a way through temptation without sinning. Peter should have pleaded with the Lord. First, he should have accepted what Jesus said. And he should have pleaded, what should I do? James says, not this James, biblical James, says, does anyone lack wisdom? What, should, what, what does James say if anyone lacks wisdom? Let him Google. Let him phone a friend. Let him ask of God. Who does what? Gives wisdom with all generality. To those who ask it. But Peter didn't ask. Because in his own eyes. He doesn't see his own weakness. He doesn't see his own limitations. Beloved do you. Do you know yours? Do you know yours? Peter was unwilling to simply accept. The admonition. The charge. The warning of the Lord. Are you. Beloved do you. Have the simple faith of a child, the, the, the very kind of faith that he said back in chapter 10 that you must have to receive the kingdom. Do you have that simple, childlike faith? 
Or are you like Peter, so prone to protest? Are you inclined to interject? Are, are, you, are you prone to say, but Jesus, but Jesus, but Jesus? Truth is, anytime we deny anything the Lord has said, whether it's from straight from his mouth, the red letter words. You, you know the red letter words aren't e- any more or less inspired than the black letter words? Everything comes from Jesus. Anytime we deny anything that the Lord has said from Peter, from Paul, from James, from Moses, from David, from any book, from any paragraph, from any line, any jot, any tittle, we deny any of it. We are in essence denying Christ. Beloved, don't get into the habit of denying the words of Christ. You deny one part, that becomes easy. It becomes easier to deny a second part and then to deny a third part and then to deny a four-part, and sooner or later you have no foundation for your biblical, for, for your faith. And people wonder why, why people fall away after they start asking critical questions of God's word. When they start asking skeptical questions. So notice now the details. And Jesus will give details as if he was a witness who saw a crime scene. He's going to give the who, the, the where, and the what. He's already said the why. And this should have been a very sobering response to Peter if he had ears to listen. Does he? No. He says, truly I say to you. And, and this is going to be the last time that we see this in, in the gospel. These words are meant to gather attention. There's a seriousness. There's a somberness. And it, it, it's the same effect as if you might look to your child and you, you say, look at me. And you gently put your finger under their chin and gently lift them up. Look in my eyes. Hi, Jess. You, you know those moments. You really need to listen to me right now. I'm not going to say this again. Look in my eyes. And then you say what needs to be said. That's what truly I say to you means. You think you would not, could not fail. But the truth is, this very night, not next year, not next month, not next week, not even tomorrow, tonight, this very night, you will deny me. Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me. It's not even, it, it'll be so early that once the rooster warms up his pipes and he gets one crow out, he will barely have enough time to get a second crow out before Peter stumbles. And, and it's as if Jesus continues, Peter... You can't blame anyone else for it. No one's going to make you do it. It is emphatic. Look, you yourself. I mean, you have to feel the finger of Jesus going into your sternum. You yourself will deny me. And there's more, yes. It gets worse. There's more. Peter... You won't do it once. 
you won't do it twice. You will deny me three times. Come to think of it, what did Jesus say about those who aspired to be first? They will be last. Another way you could put it is the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Kelly, you get a gold star. (laughs) Peter has boldly and confidently asserted his greatness. He has made himself so very big, and he has prepared himself for such a very great fall. Peter went, and that will be an abysmal fall. His failure will be worse than the rest, and it will be far more painful. In fact, we will read that he will weep bitterly. Notice in verse 31, last heading, the doubling down. The doubling down. So, so Jesus has responded to him, and Peter should have either zipped his lip or asked what he should do, but, verse 31, but Peter kept saying insistently, imperfect tense, he kept saying again and again and again, and probably used different words, probably explained it different ways, but in essence, in function, in practice, he's saying the same thing. Not me, not me, not going to happen, not no way, not know how he says even if i have to die with you and this is weird because just a second ago they were stumbling over him saying he was going to die i don't even know if he's really thinking about what he's saying i don't really know if he if he if he's if he's admitting or if he's conceding to the coming death of christ at this point this may have this may be hyperbole this may be a if you are going to die i will die with you but i won't deny you Red zone Peter. Red zone Peter. Is Peter thinking or is Peter feeling? What? Feeling. Thank you. Peter is feeling. And the side irony is this this, uh, throat straining voice, this vehement cry, That I I will not, they may all, but I will not, is the same vehement cry and throat straining pitch that he will use when he says, I don't know the man. Sad irony. Sad, bitter irony. No room in his ego for the possibility of failure. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. I, 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 I. And what's worse, is Peter alone in this? No. Mark says, they were all saying the same thing also. Imperfect. Again and again and again, they're like little children. Now, how does Jesus respond? Does he get? Does, does he come down to their level? Do we do we see Jesus saying anything else? No, he he knows. 
not to answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. He's said what needs to be said. And they're not in a frame of mind where they're learning. And you know what? Time is short. Time is short. The last few sands are, flow, are falling through the hourglass. And there is one who will hear him. He's about to go spend some time, much needed time with him in prayer. What should we do with this? Well, I think you could see that there, there were some applications as we went through this, right? What I wanted to do was conclude with what Peter learned from this. Let's turn to 1 Peter 5, 4. I think Peter learned his lesson. Sorry, First uh, Peter 5. Uh, oh, let's, read, let's start at verse 5. You younger men, because younger men need the extra admonition. Be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourself with arrogance and pomp and pride. Be all you can be. Clothe yourself with what? Humility. Towards the people you like? Towards the people who have something to offer you? One another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. R.C. Sproul says that's that's the microcosm of the Christian faith. Casting all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is around the time Jesus told him that Satan has asked, asked permission to sift him like wheat. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in all the world. Now look at this. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Establish you. So the first so what would be to humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. At the heart of Peter's failure was Peter. At the heart of Peter's failure was self. It was a lack of complete dependence on the Lord. And what made his failure so painful was how greatly, how much effort, how vehemently he defended himself and lifted himself up. Do you you not see Peter's self-reliance in this text? Do you not see Peter's self-confidence? Do you not see his self-will, his self-centeredness, his self-assertedness? Peter rushes to defend Peter. Yes, he loved the Lord, but Peter also loved Peter a little too much and trusted in Peter a little too much. Ask yourself. This is a good question to ask yourself. Am I humble? You know who's a great person to ask if you're humble? The person you live with. Humble yourselves. 
Another important takeaway, Jesus will allow you to stumble. (gasps) I thought he had a wonderful plan for my life. I thought he would... I thought he would be like a cosmic butler and just kind of whisk all my problems away. You know that, you know that the popular Jesus, the, the Jesus of pop culture is he's someone who just thinks the world of you. You are just, you're swell. You are just a great guy or gal and he just wants to make all your problems disappear. Is that the biblical Jesus? Biblical Jesus calls you to repentance. And to those who don't repent, he will... To those who who don't repent and make their bed in unrepentance, he will allow them to sleep in that bed for the sake of learning repentance. That's the biblical Jesus. Jesus will allow you to stumble. Did, Did you notice in this text, Jesus did not tell Peter how to avoid. Peter didn't ask. He let it happen. He let Peter fall. But, beloved, catch this. He was there to help Peter back up. Lenski says in this text, Jesus paved the way for Peter's repentance. Jesus used his failure as a means to draw him and lead him to repentance. Third, and this is good too, Jesus will never abandon his own. Jesus will never abandon his own. Yes, they would be temporarily scattered, they would be afflicted, they would be frightened, but they would be reunited. And what does Peter say that God promises you in verse 10? After you've suffered for a little while. Yeah, as a Christian, you're going to suffer. And that may look different in your life, it may look different in your life. But after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect. And these are all construction terms, building terms, edifying terms. He will perfect. He will complete you. He will confirm. He will strengthen and he will establish you. And, and beloved, that may, he may do that through temporal means. He may surround you with people who will lift you up when you need it. He may, he may alleviate your problems, your sufferings, your hardships. He may do that. He may not. But what I can guarantee is for every single one who trusts in the Lord, John 6, 44, I will raise him up in the last day. The the ultimate confirmation, the ultimate establishing, the ultimate strengthening is being raised up to new life with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being the good shepherd. Thank you for being sovereign. Thank you for being merciful and gracious to us. Lord, I, I, I put my arms around everyone here And I would ask that you would cause us to look to you more closely. Help us to look at you with more trust and confidence. Help us to look upon you with more affection and more reliance. Lord, let us not look to ourselves that way. 
Let us become more enamored with you, not us. Let us become more reliant on you, not us. Lord, let us decrease in our own egos and our own minds so that you may increase in our hearts. Amen.